Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detlaff, and I'm your what could I be this week? Your GameStop stockbroker for the week. And I'm Matt Vernico, your newly rehired GameStop salesman. <laughs> Manager of trade. That's right. Uh, Matt Bernica. I will give you three fifty for your PS4. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and that is um, three point uh, three five zero cents um, to the dollar. Uh, we are not talking about the stonks this time uh, on this podcast, although we are going to talk about that on the lock in our Patreon podcast. So if you're invested uh-huh, in that conversation, you can spend two of your own dollars to hear our own hot takes. And let me tell you, the prices of those are staying the same, but the quality is going through the roof. So it is a good time to get on board, buy some stock in the Magnificast. Um, instead, this week, we are going to talk about the big inauguration that happened. Um, it's a little bit late, but we wanted to kind of let the, the dust settle and see what stories were coming around. And that's what we've got going on the show this time. That's right. The inauguration happened <laughs> and Biden's in the White House. Wouldn't you know it? We're all we're all here. We've made it through that dang Cheeto. And now um, <laughs> now we've got this other guy. I guess that's all I can really say. Uh, well, in in the last few weeks um, after the inauguration, the left has been saying all kinds of things about it. And I'm sure You've said some things yourself and on this podcast, um, well, being a podcast in nature, we'll say some things about it, too. So if you watched the <laughs> inauguration or you read about it, uh, one of the big stories that uh, came out around the inauguration has to do with the prominence of uh, religious by uh, which most people mean Christian uh, people in the ceremony and in Biden's government. In fact, the Biden administration is chock-a-block full of Catholics, specifically. So many papas. Yeah, they're all in there. Um, they're all praying to Mary in that in that White House. Um, and uh, yeah, so <laughs> in the uh, in the Biden administration, that's the case, but also in the leadership of the federal government. So people you know, like Nancy Pelosi and even a lot of people on the Supreme Court. So that's got everyone talking about Biden as a beacon of the Christian left, which. If you've been listening to this podcast for a bit, you know, it really ruffles our feathers. It really grinds our gears. We don't like when people say that, but yet people are saying it. That's right. Um, you know, with all this sort of talk around the Christian left swirling around, I think it's actually an interesting time to take stock of that. Right. It's like people are trying to sort of tell a story about the Christian left and what it is. Some people are saying it's been there all along and Biden is kind of the, the symptom of it. And other people are saying this is a, a new chapter in the excitement of, of the Christian left. But uh, we like to think of the left as a much more uh, radical and uh, more interesting sort of political way of being in the world than what Biden has going for him, to say the least. Uh, and I think if you're a Christian who's involved in the radical left rather than the typical liberalism right now, then the next four years are probably going to be a frustrating time of trying to double down on what we actually think and explaining that no, uh, being a Christian on the left doesn't mean you just want people to judge to buy more electric cars or something like that. You want trains. That's what you want if you're on the left. Um, instead, uh, people on the left really want a, a kind of society that Biden doesn't really have any intention of delivering, right? He can't even say that we need socialized medicine. And Christians in particular are going to have to work hard to distance the kinds of traditions that we learn about in things like liberation theology, 
or other kinds of radical Christian traditions from the kind of liberal Catholicism or Christianity that is uh, currently in power and also the kind of darling of a lot of media outlets. So at the same time, though, we do have to sift through what Biden is doing that will improve the lives of vulnerable and working people and do our best to push those impulses harder. So that's what we're going to try to do here on the show is sort of start that conversation, figuring out what it means to be a Christian on the left, dealing with that story around Biden and the left for the next four years, uh, and also trying to sift through what the heck is even going on in the administration. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. It's a lot to do in one podcast, so I'm sure we'll talk about it more in the future. Um, when it comes to all these things, though, uh, people on the left are, uh, well, some people think that Biden can be pushed leftward and other people think that's impossible. And, um, I guess either way you look at it, <laughs> whether it's possible, whether it's impossible, whether sometimes it's possible, I don't know. But the important thing is that, uh, regardless, <laughs> regardless if it will happen, we are the ones that will be doing the pushing forward. Um, right. thinking about Biden as a person on the left is like, complicated on the one hand because he's already doing some things that are genuinely good even if they're not perfect like uh he just signed an executive order that would raise the minimum wage for federal workers and contractors and that was cool i like that uh he also fired trump's head of the nlrb a guy named peter robb and he sucks ass so that's cool too um yeah i mean we can talk about the you know, all of those things a little bit more in a minute. But at the same time, we have to recognize that those things are all responses to the demands that are made by people on the left. It's not like Biden or any Democrat really woke up one day and just decided that, yes, it's the day to raise the minimum wage or kick out this guy uh, from the NLRB. Right. They're all things that people have forced them to do. They're also compromises, too, with like much more radical demands. Um, yeah. So all that say, like Biden isn't the one pushing forward any of this, right? P people's movements are pushing them forward. Unions are pushing them forward. Socialists are pushing them forward. Um, other activists are pushing them forward. And Biden is either trying to placate some of those demands or he's trying to get them to fade away. And I think it's kind of really worth figuring this all out um, rather than just falling into either like um, like becoming doom pilled and like <laughs> very just depressed <laughs> about it all or being like... Um, I don't know what the opposite of doom pilled is Biden pilled. And you're just, <laughs> you're just uh, cool with whatever, with whatever, whatever our, uh, our grandpa president is going to do. Um, yeah. So it's, it's worth thinking through. So in this episode, we're going to do all of that. We're going to take a look at some uh, liberal Christian nationalism that frames the Biden pre presidency. And then we'll get to some of the good and also bad policy areas that folks on the left will have to think pretty critically about uh, to get anywhere in the next four years. Yeah, that's right. So let's waste no time and kick it off talking about Christian nationalism. Um, I think Christian nationalism is something that people probably aren't thinking that much about when we think about Joe Biden. It was a big story during the Trump administration. And uh, like lots of big stories during the Trump administration, they seem to have faded away <laughs> now that Biden is the president. Uh, all the critical analysts have decided not to transfer those skills, unfortunately, <laughs> in the new administration, it seems to me. Um, but not us. We're transferring every lesson we've learned in the last four years. Um, and one of those is Christian nationalism. You know, I think it's easy to sort of look at the, the Trump administration and say that was a, an ugly kind of Christian nationalism. Lots of sort of gaudy presentations of the Bible just to hold up extremely brutal and violent um, policies, etc. 
but there's also a Christian nationalism in a liberal sense, and it is also very dangerous and pernicious, even in, in if it's kind of different or has different uh, qualities. So it's worth digging into that. Um, just to kind of get the conversation going, I want to point to one example, which was a tweet from the Washington National Cathedral, which is an Episcopal church. Just recently, they put out an image of their church with an American flag projected onto it, celebrating the election of Biden and Harris. And, you know, a lot of Christian liberals have also been doing sort of victory laps in light of the inauguration and um, praising Biden's uh, presence of his faith and politics, along with the kind of Christian vision that seeped through that inaugural ceremony. And I think if you're a Christian on the left, that's all kind of troubling because the flag of the United States historically is not a symbol of freedom if you're a person who's in an oppressed country, for example, or if you've been on the wrong end of Christian white supremacy within the United States. Um, not the kind of uh, symbol or iconography that probably makes you feel like, you know, um, you belong in that kind of area, right? It's the, the symbol of oppression. So I think trying to sort out exactly how liberal Christian nationalism operates is going to be extremely important in the same way that we've tried to figure out how Christo-fascism operates. Yeah, I think that is a good idea. Um, the Washington Cathedral example, like pulling that out as an image that kind of encapsulates it all is a really good place to start because um, I mean, I saw the image and I listen, I just joined the Episcopal Church and I was like, hey, <laughs> hey, now, <laughs> what did I just sign up for? Um, <laughs> but like, I think it's uh, it's a really it's a great illustrative example because it's like, you know, a progressive denomination for the most part. And, uh, you know, now that this other guy is the president again, um, you know, we can have a we can have a certain type of Christian nationalism. We can return to a certain a certain type of uh of patriotism um, that is like that has been historically found in places like the Episcopal church. Um, and uh, people don't really bat an eye at it because it is kind of like back to the business as usual of the, the Bush year of the uh, Clinton years or of the Obama years. Right. <laughs> in some ways, the Bush years too. <laughs> yeah. In some ways. Well, yeah. In, uh, in some very interesting ways. I mean, that, that same sort of vibe existed during the Bush years. Uh, the, like the uh, the ugliness of Christian nationalism, I, I don't think um, it, it wasn't there in the same way that it was during the the Trump years. But uh, yeah, so I, I guess we can say um, a lot of things about this. But I think what's so interesting, maybe just to start the conversation off, is just that like it, it the way that it flies under the radar of basically every liberal Christian. Um, you know, now that Biden is in charge, I don't it doesn't seem like anyone has any big problems with it. No one's calling out Biden as being like a person using religion cynically to um, to like drive home some type of point or aesthetic uh, or political agenda. Now it's just like, well, he's the guy that's in charge now and uh, he's religious. And I guess that's cool with all of us. And, and no one's going to think about it too hard. That's a pretty big problem. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you know, one way of easily contrasting Biden and Trump, I think, is resisting, first of all, the leftist narrative to collapse them into the same category. They yeah. are different people. Uh, they're both bad, for sure. But it's important to recognize that people can be bad in different ways. And uh, otherwise, you don't know how to organize against them. That's the most important thing. But when it comes to Biden, you know, I think a lot of people find his Christianity refreshing because it feels more genuine than Trump's. And let's face it, it is <laughs> like no, no need to say that it's not. I'm sure that Joe Biden enjoys going to mass and 
you know, he has a lot of good relationships with Catholic priests and whatever. And and Donald Trump was sort of fumbling his way through right wing Christianity for the last four years, something that mm -hmm. I'm sure he had no idea what that even was <laughs> when he was running for president. I remember. Um, sorry, just, just a just yeah. a, a quick uh, a quick illustration of this. Uh, not too long ago, I don't even remember what church it was. It doesn't even matter. But there was a uh, an evangelical church that Trump did go to. It, it was during the COVID pandemic, um, and he was like sitting in the audience, and like everyone was like laying hands on him and like praying around him, and he never looked more uncomfortable <laughs> in his entire life. Right? It's like, but but yeah. that's really important because uh, that's that's Trump's base, and that's like sort of the 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 place where his religious rhetoric kind of comes from. Um, and he is completely alien there when he's like physically there, uh, whereas Joe Biden, maybe not so much. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and I think that's fair to say, right, to kind of draw that distinction. But in some ways, it's actually the genuineness of Biden's faith that makes it all the harder mm -hmm. to sort out and critique. Right. Um, because people take uh, a critique of that sort of expression of religion being conflated with liberalism as a, a critique of their private faith or their authenticity. And I don't know, maybe in some ways it is, maybe it's not personally. That's not really what I am on that concerned about. Um, I have no problem believing that uh, Joe Biden is like a, you know, thinks he's a good faithful Catholic and, and wants that to be an important part of his life, et cetera, more power to him. Um, but I think when it comes to conflating that your sort of genuine Christian belief with the assumption that America is uh, exceptionally the best country in the world, that it should play the role of determining uh, global politics, that it should return to its position as a global leader, telling you know China what to do, telling Venezuela what to do. These are all things that Biden has, has pledged to do. Um, then the kind of nationalism that that Christianity ends up baptizing is, and it's still an extremely violent one. And in a weird way, the celebrations of Christian liberalism end up uh, both baptizing the violence of the United States as a, an entity in the world and also um, kind of sort of baiting people, I think, into uh, weird arguments about whether or not um, Christianity is a problem. And uh, let's face it, it's a big one. It's a very big problem yeah. when it comes to the U.S. military machine. Totally. Um, there's a... Uh... <laughs> I think that one of the things that um, stick with me from my very early time as like a teenage Christian anarchist or whatever um, is understanding like all of all of that, all of the like Christian, like the liberal Christianity, like or, I'm sorry, the liberal Christian nationalism that we're seeing here, as well as like uh, the the very gross, like right wing Christian nationalism, like they're both. Um, problematic because at the at the bottom like they're always idolatrous and anyways that's like a if you've ever read anything about Jacques Ellul or any other Christian anarchist that's like a very common um argument that people start making about um nationalisms in general and um I think that well I mean I think that on the left nationalism is actually very complicated but in terms of uh either liberal or conservative types of nationalism I think the the uh the christian anarchist idolatry critique actually kind of makes some sense here that it's always something that is uh going to be you know like putting the putting um putting nationalism uh with your religion is always going to be something that sort of obscures the important thing about the gospel or the important thing about your religion um yeah i don't know um just <laughs> talking about it all and kind of thinking about how mad i am that there's a uh a u.s flag on a cathedral is just like uh giving me big shock flashbacks <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I completely understand. I mean, I uh, I think I've had that same impulse. Like, since watching that inauguration, all the reflexes that were sort of triggered in my weird evangelical emotional memory are all the ones that I imbibed under Bush, mm-hmm. strangely enough, rather than Obama or Trump. Um, and those are all reflexes that have to do with exactly that kind of idolatry critique. Um, you know, I, I think a lot about how on the show, we spend a lot of time kind of raking certain people over the coals or saying that certain critiques are insufficient, like the kind of Stanley Hauerwas vision of, you know, to be a Christian is to kind of drop out of the political process altogether and sort of live this this different life that mm-hmm. kind of witnesses to another world. I still think that's very problematic. Um, not good. Don't do it. But. I think the the thing that attracted me to that kind of thinking, you know, almost, I don't know, a decade or more ago now was uh, the fact that it does actually want to create a distinction between what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a citizen of the United States. Mm-hmm. And that distinction is extremely important. The example of the White House or the White the White House, I should call it the White House Cathedral, <laughs> the Washington National Cathedral is good, I think, because just to take one example, like I've been reading a lot of uh, Ignacio Elicuria, a Jesuit who was killed by Salvadoran um, paramilitary people who were trained by the United States. Um, and as I was reading him, he has this this really moving sort of suggestion that not only is Jesus crucified, but in history, there are what he calls the crucified peoples as well. Mm-hmm. And those are people who experience oppression, uh, who are killed, et cetera, and they they participate in the crucifixion of Christ too. And I couldn't help but think of that as I was reading it and then seeing this image as well, because what struck me was the image being projected onto the the cathedral, which is supposed to be dedicated to Jesus, you know, the person who was crucified. That image is the very image that has licensed the crucifixion of millions and millions of people around the world, including this theologian that I'm reading talking about crucified peoples. Mm-hmm. And I think that to me is such a troubling thing. And it, it, you know, it really boils my blood in a way that even conservatism doesn't, <laughs> I guess, because like with conservative Christian nationalism, I think I sort of write it off as being like, this is clearly you know, ridiculous. Like, what else can you say about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, the frustrating thing about liberals is that they think that they're on the right side, and that's the absolute worst. <laughs> like, they think they're doing something progressive, uh, but in fact, they're just sort of greasing the gears that are, you know, literally crushing people right now around the world. And I think that is uh, a troubling thing to see your faith kind of mobilized into. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the more I'm thinking about it, um, you know, we... <laughs> we're kind of drawing this distinction out that there's this sort of like liberal Christian nationalism and that um, Joe Biden's a Catholic. And that sort of like gives this whole situation a a different characteristic than, um, than Trump's very evangelical uh, expression of faith. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And thinking about past, past presidents and like, um, I mean, the obvious comparison is uh, Barack Obama or something, but like even George Bush was like a United Methodist. I mean, I think that there's probably, like more similarities between the type of Christian nationalism under Bush and and, and Biden than there is, then then they would like to admit themselves. I think I guess that's what mm-hmm, I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. is that the the um the ways that religion work out in both of those sort of political regimes um are probably kind of strikingly similar. But I guess we'll have to wait and see how it actually happens. Um, <laughs> well, a minute ago, Dean, you did mention Hauerwas, and I don't want to talk about Stanley Hauerwas, uh, because we've done it already and. Um, people have some strong feelings about that guy. 
<laughs> and they're all fine. Your feelings are great. Um, so like you said, though, that Harwas uh, is often he has a sort of critique about nationalism, that it should be something that we reject because Christians are these people that are set apart, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, ultimately, it's a politics that I think is fundamentally bad um, without saying too much about it. So rather than going the Harawasian route, I think it, it makes a lot more sense to go a way more materialist route <laughs> with a socialist analysis that focuses on anti-imperialism, uh, that focuses on labor, that focuses on, um, you know, the the crucified people. Right. Uh, but along material routes. So maybe we could we could talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I do think I'll probably spend the next four years thinking harder about Christian nationalism, and maybe that'll drive me back to reading some of these people like Elul or, uh, you know, William Kavanaugh or some of these other kind of Christian anarchist types just to see um, how much that holds up with respect to liberalism. Um, <laughs> side note, you know, I, I do find it just kind of really... Uh, the silence is deafening when it comes to people who were, you know, six months ago, very worked up about Christian nationalism and suddenly yeah. don't have anything to say about it. So <laughs> I think it's kind of like now's the time really to be working out those critiques in a meaningful way. But totally. Um, also, as an yeah, aside, too, you know, that like that right wing Christian nationalism is also not going anywhere. It's not like it's over. Yes. Right. <laughs> it's like still very much there. So don't uh, don't jettison your uh, your thoughts about right wing Christian nationalism and only think about the liberal christian national you gotta think we gotta we have to do both um yes yeah like bernie sanders says we gotta chew bubble gum and walk at the same time and uh <laughs> on this point he's right that's right um but i think you know even more important than revisiting some of those theological uh critiques especially born out of the united states is revisiting anti-imperialism matt you mentioned materialist analysis I think that is one kind of piece of this. You know, it's really easy to get caught up in the ideological battle of idolatry critique, right? To say that Christianity should believe this, you know, should believe X, but the U.S. state believes Y, and therefore they're incommensurable, right? Mm -hmm. That's how most of these kind of idolatry critiques go. Man, idolatry critique has too many R's too close together. It's very <laughs> hard to say over and over. Um but that materialist thing, I think, is so much more important because it suggests, OK, if you're a Christian, then sure, you believe X, what you know, whatever it is, you believe that uh, God has a preferential option for the poor, let's say. Um, but materially, you understand that the United States, regardless of whether it believes one thing or another, it acts in certain ways in the world that you can follow and trace and understand. So. Uh, you know, when Joe Biden pledges that he's still going to support Juan Guaido in Venezuela, uh, that is a bizarre um, attempt to, you know, maintain a certain extremely weird uh, U.S. foreign policy goal in that country. Right. And you have to have a good materialist analysis to turn your analysis against the U.S. state on the premise that the United States is threatening people's self-determination, their political sovereignty in places like Venezuela, Cuba, other places. Um, so I think that's going to be the place to go. I do think a lot of liberation theologians in Latin America have developed idolatry critique pretty strongly in this direction. Right. So it's not like it's unprecedented, but uh, important to sort of mine it from that that angle, the materialist angle. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, I don't want to um, mischaracterize idolatry as a thing that only Jacques Lul cares about because it's not true <laughs> but yeah that's a good point um yeah I mean I think what you bring up about Juan Guaido is a really good uh place to start thinking about uh about Biden right like that is a um <laughs> a place where uh 
that where Biden and Trump both deeply agree, right? They both they they um both uh both governments will uh, end up respecting the this weird guy who didn't win shit as the president of a country <laughs> that he, you know he can't even really show his face in um for for some good reason. I think it'll be really fascinating to see what happens elsewhere, um, especially in Cuba. I'm very interested to see like mm-hmm. kind of how that develops. Um, kind of uh, to his credit, Obama was uh, a person who was normalizing relationships with Cuba again, and um, things were opening up in an interesting way, but then they got rolled back uh, because of Trump. And um, there's actually a really interesting piece uh, from CJ Atkins in people's world that was written a while back about the ways that Trump kind of, um, he uh, capitalized on the anti-Cuban sentiment of, uh, Cuban Americans in Florida to kind of win Florida big. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, it's kind of interesting. So it'll be uh, it'll be a fascinating thing to see kind of what direction Biden goes with that. Um, but I I mean I hope for the best, but <laughs> bracing for the worst. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Um, you know, another thing that comes to mind to me too in thinking through the dangers of liberal uh, Christian nationalism is okay. So anti imperialism, I think, is a stronger kind of starting point than. Um, I don't know, reading the Bible in a particular way, but uh, or l- let me put it this way. Anti-imperialism can encourage you to read the Bible in a particular way. That's all I'll say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I also think it's important too to recognize how, you know, a lot of people were criticizing the 1776 project that the Trump administration was putting through at the very tail end there, trying to sort of rewrite, do a, a massive revisionist history of the U.S., um, and, you know, it was extremely ridiculous and awful. And, and again, that kind of obviously ugly Christian nationalism that uh, totally obliterates the ugliest parts of U.S. history. Um, but I think, you know, liberal Christianity, too, tries to uh, run over um, the oppression that buoys up the United States as a national project itself. Right. Uh, Christian liberal Christian nationalism also is the product of indigenous genocide of of slavery maintaining uh, Jim Crow and mass incarceration. You know, all these things are still uh, things that liberal Christians too can't admit are constitutive of U.S. identity. Right? right? They're sort of seen as uh, ugly spots that yes, you want to get rid of, but at the end of the day, they're kind of accidents that you can sort of shear off, and then you're left with the 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 good essence of American identity or whatever. Um, I think a leftist, anti-colonialist, anti-racist, anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, all those other antis, those kinds of lenses uh, try to really say that, look, you just can't salvage this kind of American identity. And the best thing you can do is try to divest yourself from it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that's what's been so uplifting about reading liberation theology um, over the past, I don't know, bit (laughs) that I've been very invested in it, is that it does demonstrate that there's like another type of Christianity that you could try that doesn't have to be the American one, but it does make you um, reorient a lot of the ways you think about the country that you live in and also about, um, you know, what it means to live here and like whose side Jesus is on and that kind of thing. So I guess all that to say that they're like, there are way, there are ways forward through this, but they are going to be like, though they, they will be hard conversations to have with people who um, are well-meaning, but at the end of the day are liberals. And that will be a hard thing to do because you know, yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, you, you said it a few minutes ago, too, though, that that uh, the, the very frustrating thing about liberals is that like their hearts might be in the right place and they think that they're right, but they um, end up having some misplaced um, some misplaced uh, priorities because they lack uh, 
a good anti-imperialist critique or a good materialist understanding of the economy or something. And um, it ends up being, they, they just end up being hard people to have a conversation with because uh, they don't, they don't understand. So I guess we have to, like you said in the intro to this episode, double down on some of these things and, and work on explaining them a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be a, a massive challenge for political and theological education alike, but yeah. an important one to meet in the next four years. Yes. Um. All right. So we're going to keep thinking about this. You should keep thinking about it, too, and let us know what you think about it. <laughs> we should all think about it together, Um. especially how to sort of oppose um, Biden's particular kind of Christian nationalism. I think it's incumbent on Christian leftists specifically to be uh, interrogating that as ruthlessly as possible, um, not relying on other comrades to do that kind of work for us. I mean, <laughs> we should know it better than anyone else being on the inside. Uh, nevertheless, um, we do have to find a way to, I think, if we want to politically organize against Biden, we have to find a way to understand the Biden administration and what it's doing and thinking in really complex and complicated ways. Um, I think this sort of is trying to, I'm trying to extend an impulse we had before the election thinking with people like Angela Davis and others about why we thought people should vote for Joe Biden, which I did do. <laughs> uh, so the impulse there was, look, Joe Biden is not a leftist, not going to deliver a socialist utopia to us by any stretch and is, in fact, even going to be a barrier to all of that. But uh, nevertheless, there are measurable differences between a Biden administration and a Trump administration for people's actual lives, mm. uh, actual working people, vulnerable people, et cetera. And I think it is worth spending some time in this episode also trying to parse some of that out, like what's the good and the bad in the Biden administration. So I want to turn it over to you, Matt, and put you on the spot, especially because uh, I think being somebody who works so directly in the labor movement, um, it's it can be maybe easier to have that kind of complicated vision of Biden. So the labor movement does give you a complicated perspective on Biden. It, it at least makes you um, understand that he's not going to be he's not going to do only bad things. <laughs> there will be some things he does that aren't so bad. It's worth parsing these things out because in the end, like the Biden presidency will be a political moment where I think like labor and the left can maybe find space to do the work that they've been wanting to do under Trump, but have had, you know, significant difficulties because of a very unfriendly administration. So, I mean, um, whether you like Biden or not, um, it's at least a time to like stretch your legs a little bit and, uh, and think and like, you know, kind of get a little bit of traction on things that, uh, you wouldn't have, uh, you know, in the last four years. So I think that maybe the best place to start thinking about some of this is just like you said, Dean, about labor in the United States. Like I I'm not as big of an expert as like Connor Lewis is or <laughs> other people, but there's some, some things I guess I have some uh, insider knowledge on um, that are it's worth kind of laying out. Um, so, OK, here are some things uh, that Biden has done about labor. So from the very beginning, um, before, even like way before the election started proper, um, Biden always made himself out to be a union guy. Um, whenever he talks to union people, uh, he's always um, really quick to talk up things like uh, he thinks that McDonald's workers should have a union. He thinks the minimum wage should be $15 an hour. He uh, <laughs> one time there's this very funny video of him talking at a I think it was like a Teamsters event. And he was like, um, he, he said he said something to the effect of don't quote me exactly. There's a video of it, though, that does exist that like, uh, you know, uh, union busters, they they should be people that go to jail. We should walk them to jail. And 
Um, <laughs> so, anyways, I, all of this, um, all of this together, right? Uh, Biden's setting himself up to be a labor president, and like that's not all bad. Um, and in the first, you know, hundred days of his presidency, well, they're not even the first hundred days isn't even over yet, right? It's only been a few weeks, but uh, he's already started to move on some of these pro labor sentiments. So, um, man, I can't remember exactly which day it was. The second day of his um, of his presidency, or the first one. Uh, the thing that he did was fire this guy from the NLRB named Peter Robb. Uh, Peter Robb sucks so bad. Um, he is like the chief general counsel of the NLRB. Peter Robb has worked to make sure like McDonald's can't be held legally responsible for labor violations uh, carried out by its franchises. That's a big deal. Um, that's why uh, because the NLRB kind of doesn't take a lot of initiative on those things like at fast food restaurants. Like that's why there's an epidemic of um, sexual harassment in McDonald's stores. Uh, Peter Robb has attacked neutrality agreements that to restrict employer interference and unionization drives. Um, so uh, he makes it basically easier for uh, your boss to tell you not to start a union. And the most egregious of all these things, not really, but <laughs> kind of, <laughs> is that he tried to outlaw Scabby the Rat. And listen, Awful. you can't do that. That's that's so bad. <laughs> it's all bad. Anyways, so I think this is an important thing, though, that he that Biden fired Peter Robb because um, it shows that Biden is like, OK, he set, he set himself up to be a labor person. He said all these big things about labor before he got to be the president. And now he's the president. And like the first thing he does is he is that he's going to like honor the wishes of like mostly every union in the United States <laughs> and fire this bad guy. And like that's something that's pretty interesting, I think. Um, I don't know. Dean, is that a story that you've I, I don't know. Is Peter Robb a thing that anyone knows about other than me or is it just like a labor <laughs> thing? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know that I would have known about it if it wasn't for you, because we talk um, while we're not on this podcast about things like that. Um, and I think, you know, how much, how much people know about someone like Peter Robb, like that's very inside baseball to me, at least of kind of labor stuff. Maybe it isn't, sure. but it is to me. Um, I will say though, one thing that I thought was fascinating was after he got fired, he made Peter Robb did a, a statement or something saying that he had been like appointed, um, you know, confirmed by the Senate or whatever Congress. I don't know. I don't know how these things work. But he had been confirmed for like 10 more months or something. Mm. And he said, you know, I, I think that whatever for the integrity of American choice or democracy, et cetera, that I should be able to run out the the, the rest of my term. And I think, OK, Biden sucks. Uh, you know, it's fine to just say that over and over again. But it's also good that Peter Robb sucks more than Joe Biden. And he did fire him and didn't have to. Um, and I think it's things like that that show you, you know, Donald Trump wants more and more and more Peter Robbs in the world. Um, it's true that Biden wants more Pete Buttigieg's in the world, and that sucks. But uh, I'll take a Pete Buttigieg over Peter Robb if I have to choose. And in that case, sometimes you do have to choose. Right. And that sucks. Yeah, uh, that's a good take. Um, well, if you've never heard of Peter Robb before, you can go read about him. I don't know, just type his name in. It's Rob with two B's. He's a he's the worst Peter you'll ever meet. You you maybe you don't know his name, but you'll you'll uh, definitely recognize uh, the fruits of his labor when you kind of figure out all of the things he's behind at the NLRB. He, he sucks so bad. Anyways, so that that's cool. That's the thing that Biden did, um, and it shows a certain willingness to to do the things that labor people have asked him to do, and that's good. But that's not all. Let me tell you some other things. <laughs> um, 
Biden, uh, when he was running, uh, he said he was going to raise the minimum wage. And that's a good thing, too. That is a thing that will materially help people, um, even if it's not exactly the amount or the schedule that we'd all like. It would still help people. Um, doesn't mean it's like perfect or what people need, just that it's better than leaving the minimum wage at 725 an hour. Anyways, um, so yeah, during uh, during the debates, uh, Biden started talking about this a lot more. Uh, it was really interesting. I think it was in the second debate he did with Trump. He that's when he start, first started talking about raising the wage, and then all of a sudden the next day, that was a huge popular topic that everyone wanted to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that like I mean I remember early on in the Biden campaign I couldn't tell you a single thing that Biden like actually wanted policy wise until until that until he wanted to raise minimum wage that was the first thing I read. I think I realized that he actually wanted to do um, but uh, yeah I think it's really important to recognize that um, him being for that is good but it's also not a thing that Joe Biden himself has thought of um, you know for the last. 12 plus years uh, workers in a whole bunch of different unions uh, have been organizing to try to raise the minimum wage nationally to $15 an hour. That's the kind of important part. Some, some States like New York uh, or uh, I think California have a $15 minimum wage already, but the, the point is to raise it like the federal minimum wage so that people in like uh, in Tennessee or Louisiana don't get left behind. It's really fucked up if you start thinking about it too, because like, um, you know, it's it's great that people in New York um, or whatever make fifteen dollars an hour, but in Louisiana, because of the um, the ways, I mean, the the Republican majority in in states like Louisiana, um, they will never win a minimum wage fight at the na- at the state level. It just like won't happen, right? Because the uh, the people who are in power are beholden to the corporate interests. So, people in Louisiana, people in Tennessee, they the minimum wage in both those states is only seven twenty five an hour because it's the federal minimum wage. So raising it to fifteen dollars an hour could be a big thing. So okay, hang on, that is the thing that Joe Biden wants to do. It is a thing that Joe Biden has done by executive order for federal workers and contractors. So if you're a federal worker or you're contracted by the federal government, you'll make fifteen dollars an hour because that's something that he can do via. Um, executive order um which is i mean you know is good um it's a good standard i guess to set um and it would even affect a lot of people that um you know wouldn't make that much otherwise so all right um biden did put raising minimum wage in like a covid plan kind of early on which is an interesting thing but it um doesn't seem like that is going to materialize (laughs) now that people are starting to argue about it more um it sounds like the way forward for the minimum wage is a um, is a new piece of legislation that was introduced on Tuesday called the Raise the Wage Act, which is really just a, a sort of rehashing of something that was introduced in 2019. But now that they have uh, now that the Democrats have like the numbers, basically, they're going to try to get it all passed. Um, so like I said a, a few minutes ago, it's not completely perfect, right? It's like fifteen dollars an hour on a schedule that um, it doesn't get to 25, it doesn't get to $15 an hour till 2025, which, you know, could be better, right? It would be great if um, it was immediately, but I don't know. Um, that's not the way it's worked out in this instance. Um, you should still, if you're a person that likes to email your representatives, you should definitely email them and say, Hey, it should be $15 right now, or it should be $25 an hour right now, or you should, give the workers the means of production right now, which is like one of those things. Um, your representative will probably ignore you, but it's still worth doing. Um, anyways, all that say Joe Biden's in favor of it. A lot of other Democrats are in favor of it. Like 
uh, it's not a done deal for sure. Um, you should definitely tell your representative that that's what you want to happen. But um, all that to say is there's a pretty good chance that it will happen and that Biden is for it. OK, so there's all of that. Um, let me tell you one more thing that Biden could possibly do that he uh, said that he is in favor of. And then we can talk about the the good things in some kind of more critical light. Um, OK. So in the world of labor legislation, there are a lot of problems with labor law. Like there are all kinds of laws that um, really make forming a union more difficult than it should be. Um, and they all suck. That's what I'm here to say. Um, but there is one piece of legislation that Joe Biden has been in favor of that a lot of unions, if not every single one of them, are also in favor of. And it is called the PRO Act. It's uh, the PRO stands for protecting the right to organize. And uh, again, it's not perfect legislation. I think there are some things that could still be better, but it is a much needed change to the way that uh, labor works in the United States. Uh, man, there's so much stuff that this would do. And it is some of it is like very inside baseball that um, it would be very boring to hear me talk about on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but if you really want a good breakdown of it, there's this guy who is a labor lawyer. His name is Brandon Magner, and he has a very good Substack. That's brandonmagner.substack.com. He has an article on there called Breaking Down the Pro Act. And like, I mean, at the end of the day, like the thing that you need to know about it as a person who if you don't already know about it, let me just tell you like the, the big idea. <laughs> Basically, Please. just without getting to the weeds too much, it just makes like forming a union way easier. It may, it makes things like uh, captive audience uh, meetings, like your boss calling a meeting and making you listen to why unions are bad. That, that would be illegal. Um, employers can't um, interfere with union organizing. So it gives it gives like unions and organizers a lot more latitude and like what you can actually do in a workplace. And it, it um, prohibits uh, a lot of barriers that uh, that your boss might put in place. Um, it also does a lot of things, too, with like um, uh, re kind of redefining the terms employer and employee, which is a big deal and uh, classification. It's just it's a whole thing. So read about it. It's really good. Anyways, Biden said that he's for it. And um and there is a chance that it could pass um, if you uh, let's see. So you can go read that Substack about it. There is um, a union called the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, IUPAT. Um, it's a pretty big union. Anyways, they've been really championing the cause of the PRO Act um, since right before the election. They have a cool video out. So you can go check them out on Twitter. They're always talking about it, though, and like what it would do for people. So um, it's worth it's worth kind of investing your time in to learn something because it would be a really a pretty groundbreaking thing, I think, for unions in the United States. Um, if those if uh, if the PRO Act was passed, the union density would probably raise. I don't know. I'm not an expert, but like that, that would be my <laughs> assumption, though. All the it would be easier to form a union. So I imagine there'd be more. But who knows how it would all shake out? Yeah. OK, so all that said, these are the good things that Joe Biden could do for labor. We've seen him already kind of like do these things. We've, we've seen him already kind of like uh, take cues from labor leaders. And that's a pretty uplifting thing. Uh, Dean, what should we do about this? What, how should we think about this? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I'm always of two minds about it. You know, I, I guess uh, the person I always think about when I have to sort this stuff out is Rosa Luxemburg, who we've talked about on the show before. She the context is very different. So I don't want to pretend this is a one to one kind of transfer of a point because it's not 
But in a dispute with other um, socialists in Germany and the party that she was in as a radical communist, um, the big question for them was reform or revolution and arguing against the uh, reformists, um, but also having a more nuanced opinion about revolution. She said, look, if there are reforms that genuinely make the lives of workers better, then of course we support those reforms. However, we support those reforms with the horizon of revolution around the corner, and we also do not sort of celebrate those reforms as a, a real victory. That these are, um, you know, kind of, they're almost like checkpoints in a struggle. Like, we've, we've gotten that piece of it, but that's not actually where we need to go. And I think, you know, the, the big problem with not just liberalism, but even a lot of democratic socialism is that sometimes it takes the reforms as ends in themselves. If you can achieve this legislative victory or get this person into office you've kind of you've done it um and uh you know everybody should crack the champagne and get get patting each other on each other's backs or whatever i think uh luxembourg at least helps us as communists think a little bit harder about how yeah you know proact great like if we could increase union density in the u.s that would be an, a genuinely game-changing situation for revolutionaries um but uh we have to sort of celebrate that with that horizon in mind um yeah, I think that's that's the the piece that helps me out. It's important to affirm it as being good. It's also important to affirm it as being um, not quite what we want. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, as I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking a lot about the way Marta Harnacker talks about um, socialism in the 21st century. Um, and I think that there's maybe a lot to be said for that way of thinking, too. I mean, it's it in a lot of ways, she's kind of tackling similar questions about reform or revolution and kind of taking both, you know, the non-reformist reforms is I think uh, a good way to characterize what Marta Harnacker thinks. But um, when it comes to things like the pro act and like uh, making it easier for people to form unions, like if you wanted to, you, you know, if you, if you're trying to build a, um, a people's movement, if you're trying to build the power of working people, like you need unions to do it. So, um, does Joe Biden intend to create the conditions where working people have so much power that they could seize parts of the government and like, you know, and, and do, and do socialism in some, in some way, like Marta Harnaker might say, no, he does not intend that. He doesn't think that. <laughs> and like, that's, that's wild, but like, and he would stop it if he could. Yeah, totally. But at the same time, like if, if, uh, I don't know if this act, if passes and it kind of works out the way everyone wants it to, like, um, it very much sets the stage for, for that type of power building, I guess is, is it, I mean, it doesn't mean that socialism is happening or something, but what I'm trying to say is that like, it gives people the opportunity to build working class power in a way that has not been present in the United States for a very long time. And in that sense, that would be, I think, a non-reformist reform, um, whether Joe Biden would want it to be or not. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's still there's a very long fight ahead, right? Like that it hasn't even happened yet. So, um, yeah, yeah. Things to think about. But but like when when people are, are talking on Twitter or other places about like, you know, can you push Joe Biden left? And people are like, no, of course you can't. Joe Biden sucks. And it's like, yeah, he does suck. That's true. But it does seem like there are places you can push them left, and it does seem like labor is one of those places. Um, or at least that's what we've gotten a glimpse of right now, and maybe he'll show us the opposite later. <laughs> but, um, you know, may, uh, pushing Joe Biden left on Medicare for all is not going to happen, right? Like, that's something he's already, he's come out so hard against in all these different ways. But labor he's already very friendly with. He wants, he wants to be the union guy. 
and uh, maybe that's at least a place to push to make uh, certain good reforms. Yeah, I think I uh, my my leftist um, hairs on the back of my neck, of course, spring up anytime there's some kind of suggestion that Biden might be good. Um, and maybe I'll just kind of let that air out for a second. <laughs> I do think, you know, Biden is not an ally of the labor movement. I think I want to make that clear. Like, he's not an ally of the left. Um, and he can't be pushed to the left in a meaningful way. And in many respects will be an, an enemy of the left, of a barrier to the left. I mean, you can understand, you can understand Joe Biden as Capitol's attempt to ward off uh, the left, right? Warding off uh, not just Bernie Sanders, but more radical movements than him. You know, Black Lives Matter and um, Standing Rock and uh, Occupy, all these people's movements that actually started under Obama, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, Biden is the answer to that from Capitol's perspective. He's the business-friendly liberal who will kind of throw some breadcrumbs our way. I think the important thing is to say, you know, eat the breadcrumbs, that's fine. <laughs> but like, uh, don't uh, don't sit around and wait for Biden to throw them to you, you know? Um, maybe to take another example, like I always think about prison abolition. Um, just recently, there was a, a big story about how uh, Biden is going to ban the Department of Justice from uh, renewing contracts with private prisons. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is like, it was seen as a, a massive victory by all kinds of liberals who are kind of like, aha, all these leftists want to defund the police and look, here's Biden out doing it. Um, I think the frustrating thing about this is um, it would be very good for Joe Biden. It would be very good for the federal government to not contract federal prisons, for sure. I mean, they should, you know, every every private prison um, should be uh, burned to the ground 100 um, percent. But uh, it's important to keep these things in perspective, too. Right. Like less than 10 percent of the U.S. prison population is actually in private prisons. Um, the United States has like the statistic is something like 5 percent of the world's population and it has like more than 20 percent of the world's incarcerated people. Right. So it's like, yes, if we could if we could uh, eliminate private prisons, that would be great. But that's not even going to reduce the prison population, mm -hmm. uh, first of all. And it also private prisons are not the problem. The problem is not that uh, they're privately owned. There's so much private profit being generated by public prisons, by federal yeah. prisons. Right. Like labor that's done there. Um, cafeteria services that are contracted out to private firms. Uh, phone companies that charge exorbitant rates for collect calls, all these kinds of things like money is being made in public prisons, too. So if the profit motive is what makes you think it's gross, uh, I have bad news about public prisons. <laughs> um, and I think this is the big thing, right? Like, it, is it good that Joe Biden thinks that uh, private prisons are, are bad? Like, yes, of course. I mean, they are bad for sure. But what's bad about it is this becomes an extremely effective PR campaign by which Biden can say, I have yeah. I've heard your concerns <laughs> and acted accordingly. Right. Uh, meanwhile, having done literally basically nothing to address the problem of mass incarceration. Totally. So, and because the, par yeah. the problem of mass incarceration, too, stretches far beyond the institution of a prison. Right. It's like exactly it's exactly. inherent in the entire penal like the penal system um, of uh it's inherent in the entire logic of criminal justice in the United States. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, not just... and economics and healthcare and everything. Right, totally. I mean, um, right, yes, all of that is true. 
and um i think it's a good point <laughs> it's a good point to kind of that well it characterizes the uh the the very pr nature of some of like what biden will end up doing and get praise for and uh i think what will be interesting to see like like i i think that in a lot of ways that kind of thing did not fly when trump would do it like the media would like you know they would cast a certain light on it but i think that biden will end mm-hmm. up getting praise for doing nothing <laughs> <laughs> in ways that Trump mm-hmm. did not um, because of, yeah, I mean the, the fake media, et cetera, et cetera. But like um, <laughs> it, it will, it, it will probably be the case though, that like they're way friendlier to Biden uh, just because of who he is um, and general media bias than they were to Trump, which is going to be very funny to see <laughs> and very disappointing to see too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it already is the case, right? It's like op-ed after op-ed. Talk, uh, praising Biden from these people who would have been way more suspicious of what they heard at a White House press conference yeah. a week ago yep. or three weeks ago. But yeah, you know, it's just like, here's here's what I want. I don't want anyone to go away from this episode saying, aha, the Magnificast thinks that actually Biden might be good uh, or like could could do some things that are, um, you know, worth kind of spending time defending or like sticking up for or whatever. Um, on the contrary, I think what I would want to say is if you want to organize against a Biden presidency and against the kind of Christian nationalist vision of the Biden presidency, then what that means is really taking the full picture into account and understanding what openings are being uh, made, um, even if Biden doesn't understand the full weight of those openings. I, that's what I hear you saying, Matt, at least mm-hmm. is like trying to really name what those are and then take advantage of them. Um so it's that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, you know, really seeing the particular nature of how Biden is failing to uh, to bring about the change that we actually do want. Um, you know, wh- one thing that I do always think about, I guess maybe this is the pivot into thinking about what do we actually do for the next four years. Uh, something I often think about is like, uh, I think it was Boots Riley. I wish I knew exactly where this is from. I, I know it was him who said it, but I can't remember the details. Anyway, he, you know, he's always talking about how uh, the big thing is withholding your labor and getting people out in the streets. And I think uh, one thing that he he always sort of reminds people of is the way that people got civil rights reforms um, from the state government was actually by extracting them, not just from Democrats, but from Republicans. You know, like Richard Nixon had to pass all kinds of civil rights stuff because people were out there doing their thing, you know, like Mm -hmm. people weren't going home. I mean, they were showing up over and over and over again, and that extracted massive concessions from an incredibly racist president. And I think that's the big issue for us now is like, how do you build the kind of movement that forces Biden's hand even against himself, you know, doesn't force him to be your ally, but forces him to recognize that actually he probably can't swim against this stream. And in some cases, he's going to have to sort of let the current flow. I think, uh, you know, the seeds of those movements are being built. Uh, you can see the kinds of concessions that Biden is making are motivated by that, right? Would we? Would he have cared about private prisons if there hadn't been a call to uh, abolish them? Absolutely not. Right. Um, but we need those movements to be bigger, stronger, more consistent, et cetera. I think that's the work of the next four years. Yeah, I, I agree. Like it's a transitional period though, right? Like, um, or, or at least that's maybe a, a way to think about it is it's a transition away from, um, an extremely right-wing president to a <laughs> extremely another, another slightly less right-wing president. Um, <laughs> but one that, uh, the, but one that is going to give, uh, these movements like labor, uh, like prison abolition, like, you know, um, like socialist movements, 
um, g- give them space to do some organizing work. And like, like you said, don't, don't defend Biden. Like that is not important, you know, like whatever, uh, politicians are in public office. Uh, you can cyber bully them all you want and there's nothing wrong with that. But like what you should do is, um, defend the organizers that are behind, you know, these pressures with your life (laughs) because they're the people that have already started getting the work done. And they're the people that you need to kind of like stand with basically to, to keep making sure it does get done. Um, I, I think that uh, that is important, <laughs> really, like, you know, like, I, I don't know, I, I've already seen people on the left who are like, um, mad about a labor union working with Biden or or something, because like, oh, that's just a concession or whatever. Um, you can't you can't work with him or, you know, being basically ultra leftist about it. And I think that's such a problem, because like, I, I don't know, it's fine that you think that it's fine that you think that uh, Biden is like, you know, s- such a bad person, you can't even work with him. But like, I don't know, you're not going to get anything done unless you kind of engage in these these places, um, like unions, like um, other other types of organizations, like you have to, um, you have to be like, an inst- you have to have an institution, you have to have a platform that you can speak from and make demands from. And I think that's important. Um, so people are already doing that. And uh, if you don't like it, I don't know, examine, <laughs> examine why that is the case. You don't have to like Biden, yeah. but you should definitely like the people who are making demands of Biden. Yeah, or if you don't like it, then, I don't know, <laughs> become your union president and do something about it. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> you know, so. Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just like, I don't know, don't... There is a there is a tendency of internet leftism that wants to throw out everything that touches institutional power because it's, it's like, somehow corrupt. And I get, like, uh, you know, I think that is an unfortunate power analysis because it will end up you know it leads to impotence um completely um so don't do it (laughs) listen to the people that are already doing the work and like um i think trying to find ways to be involved with that work is really good um yeah there i'm gonna i'll do like i'm gonna do one quick call out of an organization i deeply do not like um on the left i think (laughs) that, that is uh um guilty of this kind of thing there's this uh, it's a socialist organization and it is the website is world socialist website and I don't <laughs> I don't like it so, I, I dislike it so much because whenever there is a um, whenever there's like a strike whenever anyone goes on strike um, if the uh, if the strike doesn't work and they have to make concessions or whatever and they don't get everything you know the strikers don't get everything they asked for the reporting is always like Yep. And that's just uh, that's just the union boss, um, you know, living off the dues of the workers. And that's why unions are ultimately bad. And if they do, um, if they do get some kind of concession, if they do win the strike, they'll be like, well, they should have uh, they should have pressed harder and uh, fought for socialism and uh, not just a raise. It's just such a frustrating thing, though, because it's like um, <laughs> it's a type of socialism. It's a type of leftist thinking that moves the goalposts on the people who are actually in the struggle <laughs> in such an unfortunate mm-hmm. and unproductive way. And I hate it. So don't be that type of leftist. Be the be the type that will like, I guess, be a part of a movement and like get your hands dirty and like do some shit. Yeah. Yep. I think that's going to be the the continual line for the next four years. I will say I'm looking forward to thinking through the problems of liberal Christianity uh, in a different way. I mean, we think about it all the time in the show, but thinking through those problems in this climate, I think will allow us to be a little clearer, even while we also try not to lose sight of uh, what's brewing with um, Christofascism and all that sort of thing that will inevitably be symptomatic of this whole period as well. Um, but I think this is a good place to start. 
And I think that if your church is projecting the American flag onto your building, um, you should go replace that projector with like a cool bat signal or something. <laughs> Not the bat signal, because he's he's a, a cop. Um, replace it with spi- um, Spider-Man signal. Yeah, also vaguely cop-like. It's hard to find good good signals to replace it with. Hmm. Um, the Larry Boy signal, also kind of a cop, I, I guess. I was going to say Green Lantern, but no, he's a cop too, huh? Uh, they're all cops. What a bummer. Um, replace it with uh, a very funny emoji. Okay, Squirrel Girl. Squirrel Girl, though, if she has a signal, Squirrel Girl would be the good, a good one because she's not a cop. She is definitely just a teenager. And she does talk to squirrels. She's here to kick butts and eat nuts, which is also it's a great a great goal for 2021. Yeah, it is. Um, all right. I think that's it for the Magnificast this time. This is the only time I've ever ended an episode like this. <laughs> and, uh, how it happened, nobody knows, but it's happening now. I'm just going to do the outro from here. Why not? There's no transition music for this one. I'll make Matt's editing life a little bit easier. Thank you. Um, if you like what you heard in this episode, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. And if you do, you can find another podcast there called The Lock-In, where we talk about current events. Um, this week we're talking about uh, GameStop and its meteoric rise to the moon and how actually uh, things are a lot more complicated <laughs> than people are saying. Um, also, uh, you can join a Discord server that we have um, if you donate at two dollars or more. And there's so much really fun stuff. I think that's been the best thing of the last month of my life, giving me a lot of energy. Um, just uh, chatting with lots of cool listeners and people sharing resources and all that kind of stuff. Really valuable community there. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, yeah, you can email us if you want. I guess we don't check it as much as we should, but it's there. Our music is by Amaria Armstrong and our outro is by the Illogical Spoon. See you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.